G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Now, as we all know, um, our government has appointed next Saturday as the day on which we can, in fact, we must, in fact, you shall, under the threat of a fine, go and uh, vote toward the formation of a new government over our nation. Um, With that in mind, I have appointed this Sunday, today, as the day on which we can, not that we must and certainly not that we shall under any threat whatsoever, Um, but I've appointed today as the day that we give a little bit of biblical thought to the topic of voting and politics and what on earth it is that we're being asked to do next uh, Saturday, next weekend, Christianly speaking. So as we get underway then, um, I'd like to give you some practice for next Saturday. Here we go, a bit of practice. I'd like you to cast your vote. Um, take a private vote, a silent one, just like next Saturday, invisible to everyone else. Uh, And it's on a very specific question and it's a yes or no question, so just in the privacy of your own mind, I'm giving you a chance to cast your vote. Here it is. Was Jesus telling his followers to pay the tax to Caesar or not? You got the question? Was he saying, yes, of course you should pay your tax to Caesar, it's Caesar's coin, give it back. Um, God is interested in bigger things, in other things than that. Or was he saying, no, Caesar has no legitimate claim ultimately over your money. And so, in a sense, the first phrase, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, was a kind of political expediency to get him out of trouble. But the real deal is, you actually owe God everything. Um, And it belongs to God ultimately. God trumps Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Now, to help you cast your vote of yes or no, let me read to you, just reread that relevant section, just those seven or so verses there, and um, if you could cast your vote by the end of that, uh, by the time I get to verse 22, that'll be helpful for where we go next. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, trap Jesus in his words, They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Pay your taxes, yes or no? Brothers and sisters, this morning, I'm hoping to show you that if you voted yes, you have misunderstood the teaching and intent of Jesus in this passage. And I want to show you that if you voted no, you have misunderstood the teaching and intention of Jesus in this passage. (laughs) It was a trap! How fitting for this passage, eh? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, Great. Can we pray? Because there's more at stake than whether or not we pay tax, a simple yes or no. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, 
As we dwell on a phrase that has become a cliche, these words of Jesus that have become so divorced, so disconnected from him and from their context, would you please reacquaint us with their significance for our lives today? Would you teach us this morning, please, your ways for how to live down here in a politically complex world? Teach us your wisdom, please, for how to respond when things don't go the way that we'd hope. Teach us how to heed your word, please, and do your work And yes, even how best to vote. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, if we're to grasp, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's, uh, beyond the level of a cliche, beyond the level of a catchphrase that we trot out come the end of financial year when we realise that we've miscalculated our tax burden and responsibilities and so we try to assuage our sense of guilt or um, calm our nerves. Uh, first, we've got to get back in the context um, and that brings us slap bang to this bizarre verse, verse 16. Let's pick it up from verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to Jesus nothing unusual so far, here it comes, along with the Herodians, there it is. Folks, Matthew tells us that they are laying a trap, Jesus reminds us in verse 18, you guys are laying a trap? Let me tell you this morning, the Herodians are the trap, the Herodians are the trap, but we've got to do a little bit of background and especially if you're newer here, I want us to do a little bit of background to uh, help us wrap our heads around that, and to help us see, I hope, why it is that they were so amazed by Jesus, his dazzling response by the end, verse 22. Uh, A little bit of background firstly, um, what's with this pairing of the Pharisees and the Herodians? As one writer put it, that, that is a strange mixing of bedfellows, How so? Well, uh, if you're new to this, so the Pharisees, you probably, most of us are probably fairly familiar with them, the Pharisees, they loved God's law, didn't they? Loved God's law, loved God's people, uh, lived for God's nation, Israel, they loved their history, they loved their traditions, they firmly believed that they would be better off without those filthy Roman overlords who undermine their ability to be God's one treasured people on all the face of the earth, right? The Pharisees. Now, it's probably worth saying in our climate today, no, they were not violent revolutionaries or violent radicals. These were principled men with deep convictions, well, deep convictions about Rome and where exactly she could take a hike, if you take my meaning. Now, the Herodians... I'll give you a word here for the Herodians, cronies, cronies. Uh, So, cronies of the Roman overlords and they're called Herodians because the local Rome-appointed kings were named Herod. Um, So, these Herodians that we meet here were the lackeys of those kings, their loyals, their cronies. So, the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. I just want us to see, in terms of background, the point that I'm trying to make is, this is Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton becoming gym buddies for a time. Weird. 
Last little bit of background, um, then how could or indeed how should we have seen this coming? Um, in fact, why has it become an obvious alliance by this point in Matthew's Gospel? And um, the answer is because Jesus had been promising a kingdom. A kingdom was the theme of Jesus' teaching in recent chapters and who better to squash Jesus' little kingdom than the current kingdom's cronies, do you see? It should never be forgotten, says Richard Hayes, it should never be forgotten that talk about the kingdom of God was potent political language in Jesus' time. It would have been heard as declaring the restoration of an Israel free from outside domination. Could we quickly review a few of Jesus' words um, on this from back in the day? So, over just the preceding few chapters to get a little bit of a sense of it, uh, how big this kingdom stuff has become. So, you look at Matthew 16, verse 28. Is this coming up on the screen? Yeah. Uh, you look at Matthew 16, verse 28, for example. I tell you the truth, Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here today will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. All right, so it is soon, it is nearly here. Some of you won't even die before you see this coming. Matthew 19, uh, because through chapters 18 and 19, it's kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. So 19 verse 23, for instance, I tell you the truth, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so fear of missing out is starting to creep in. For these folks, indeed, even rich Jews can't buy their way in, so who can get into this kingdom of God? Uh, one woman, as if scrambling around at a Boxing Day sale for bargains, she tries to convince Jesus to give her sons special spots in the kingdom, lest they miss out altogether. Uh, so, Matthew 20, verse 21, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And notice it has become your kingdom now, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, your kingdom, Jesus. But what really grates the Pharisees, I think, perhaps even more than the loss of their followers as they drift away after Jesus, are comments like these, from Jesus at them, Matthew 21 and verse 31. 21, so just the chapter beforehand. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, just in case they missed it, verse 43 of the same chapter, so we're just right before our section now, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, that really gets them, because a couple of verses later, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew He was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest Him, but they were afraid because of the crowd. And so, if nothing else can stop Jesus and can stop this kingdom business, His kingdom that's about to come and everyone's scrambling to get in, well, perhaps the cronies of Caesar's kingdom, maybe they come in handy after all. Can we see the trap more clearly now uh, that we find from verse 15? Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him. In his words, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Can you see how important they are in the scene now? Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men, 
because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Face it, Jesus, you've got a choice to make. Will you keep rabbiting on about your kingdom and its bigness and it is coming and it's yours, even in the hearing of the real king's men? Or will you say it once and for all that your kingdom, it's not so grand after all, it's not such a pressing need, no, we can pay tax to Caesar, we can prop up his kingdom, yes, of course, my kingdom just exists quite happily under the kingdom of Caesar after all, do you see? And hence, I think they pile on that insincere praise, don't they? We know that you're a man of integrity, you aren't swayed by anyone, they're saying, pretend that we're not even here, go on, tell us the answer that you give if we weren't even here. Can you see now that it's a kingdom question, it's not a tax question. (laughs) The Pharisees couldn't care less about tax, but they would like nothing more than to sink Christ's kingdom once and for all. So, Jesus needs an answer which, whether or not you hear him calling for tax, loud and clear, he is saying, uh, he is pronouncing the call of God's kingdom still. So, how does he go? How does he go? What's the response from verse 18? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Folks, what does your Bible have at verse 20? Verse 20, do you, if you have one on your lap there, what does, it, um, what does it say? Is it different to what's on the screen? Because as much as I love the NIV, I'm about to criticise one particular word in this entire passage. Anyone got anything different, a different translation? No, we've all got the NIV, that's totally fine. I mean, it's an excellent translation, I'm so glad of it in almost every single instance. But the problem is, that portrait word in verse 20, can you see it there? So, mine says, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? So, the Greek word for that portrait word, um, it's translating a Greek word that is heavily loaded and you'll know what I'm talking about when I read it to you. So, I'll read you a couple of other English translations of verse 20. The King James, verse 20, whose is this image and superscription? Or uh, the English Standard Version, The English Standard Version, excellent modern translation, verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? Or the Holman Christian Standard Bible, another excellent modern translation, very like the NIV, says, whose image and inscription is this? Why the big deal? It's because Jesus' big point isn't the image on the coin. You see that? See, his big point isn't the image on the coin, give to Caesar the the thing with his image on it, no, give to God, do you see it now, the thing that bears his image and likeness. You, O Pharisee, O Herodian, O human being, whoever you are, O brother and sister this morning, today you bear the image and likeness of someone, stamped onto your very being, stamped into your very soul, you bear the image and likeness of your Creator, Do you see the play on words now that he's making? 
In fact, Jews should have seen the other half of verse 20 as well. Yes, the image, but also whose inscription is written on the very hearts and minds of you, O God-honouring Pharisee, in the Word of God. Now, Carson sums it up like this, I think he is bang on, when he says, when Jesus asks the question, whose image is this and whose inscription, biblically informed people will remember that all human beings have been made in the image and likeness of God. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, right from the start. All human beings have been made in the image and likeness of God. Moreover, His people have the inscription of God's law written on them. If we give back to God what has His image on it, we must all give ourselves to Him. Jesus' famous utterance, means that God always trumps Caesar. We may be obligated to pay taxes to Caesar, but we owe everything, our very being, to God. So, is Jesus saying yes or no to taxes? I think the only thing He is saying yes to in this passage is the Kingdom of God and its claims over your entire life, whoever you are. If you walked up in this scene believing that you owe tax to Caesar, presumably like the Herodians did, then you'd walk away believing that you owe taxes to Caesar. Do you see the, do you see the genius of his response? If you walked up believing that you couldn't possibly pay tax to Caesar in clear conscience because it was idolatry or because it undermined God's uh, um, uh, kingdom or because they were corrupt and you wouldn't feed that beast then you'd walk away believing that as well, but out of giving your entire self to God, do you see? But what Jesus is saying is, don't try and stuff God and His Kingdom into something separate from and irrelevant to worldly life. God owns the lot, God rules the lot, God will have the lot in the end, His kingdom is still coming and stop trying to escape that, O Pharisees. Now, sure, that doesn't make it very easy for us to figure out whether or not we should pay taxes as Christians today. I recommend you read Romans 13 and by the way, the answer is yes, you should. But to God, and we need to get this, you don't just owe the coins of the tax, you owe the very hand with which you pay it, you owe your very self, your very soul. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So, folks, next Saturday, I plan to vote. Um, In my opinion, there's no biblical case to resist that law. Perhaps you can mount an argument for it, but I can't see quite how I could do that. Uh, So, what advice, if any, does this passage have for us voters? If it is really so fundamentally about marginalising Caesar and centering our very lives on God. What advice can we take from this passage? By way of conclusion, may I offer five quick suggestions? Five quick suggestions from this passage for next Saturday. Number one, firstly, let us vote as an act of worship to God and not, in the first instance, as a service to the state. Not in the first instance and certainly not in the service of my own personal ends and what profits me and benefits me and inflates my bottom line or my social needs or my preferences or whatever, do you see? Everything belongs to God. No, God's kingdom is ultimate, not the state, certainly not my little empire. Second, 
If God's kingdom outshines and outlasts and outranks this earthly kingdom that today we call Australia, uh, then as a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, then I can safely say that it ought to be well with my soul if the bad guys get in next Saturday, whoever your version of the bad guys are, okay? It ought to be well with my soul. Uh, Let us not fret, Christian, let us not take to Facebook and decry the future of our land if the cards fall other than the way that we had hoped. Put it this way, if Caesar, as in actual Caesar, and the actual line of Caesars could not unseat Christ, then Mr Shorten can't and Mr Turnbull can't and neither can anyone in between, do you see? Thirdly, as for how to vote... Well, if I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, then my vote, like the rest of my life, it ought to reflect that prior kingdom, that prior citizenship. I think ordinarily as Christians, we take that to mean um, that I'd better make a stand on some fairly narrow moral issues, um, like marriage redefinition or abortion or gambling or asylum seekers. Um, And may I say, I hope those do feature in your thinking about who to vote for. But if that means that we let ourselves off the hook on bigger questions, then I think that's a real shame, actually. See, because I think, I think these are moral questions. Is liberal economic policy really such a flash idea? Is, social, is modern socialism really such a flash idea? Do I actually agree with those so-called moral conservatives in the fine print of their policies? Um, is it perhaps sometimes at least worth voting for someone with whom I disagree on some moral issues in view of the fact that I think they carry themselves so much better in argument and treat their opponents with grace and dignity in the political process. Don't just take the narrow view of what constitutes the moral vote is what I'm suggesting. Your your vote should reflect your heavenly citizenship. Fourthly, to state the obvious... I've noticed that God isn't on the ticket, at least not in my electorate. Um, And I suspect we're mostly in the same one. I'm not voting for his kingdom. I am voting for a bunch of sinners, and that's whether they're Christian candidates or not. So please don't think that there's one right answer. As if any of the candidates on your list is your saviour, I assure you, the place of saviour has been taken. It is not one of those people. Lastly, if you do get it wrong, then in a sense, no biggie, right? Um, Yes, there are sinners on the ticket, but it's also sinners filling it out, isn't it? Does your place in God's kingdom depend on the correctness of your vote? Our place in God's kingdom depends on Jesus. That's why the Pharisees weren't in. That's why the Herodians were out because they came to Jesus to trap Jesus. We come because we know that the kingdoms of this world cannot save us, but Jesus can, and Jesus has, and Jesus will. How about we pray together? Our Father God in heaven, we thank you so much that we do not look for a saviour when it comes time to vote. Uh, We thank you so much that we do not look for rescue when it comes time to vote. We thank you so much, Father, that our hopes for this world 
do not depend on the men and women that we elect to office in this land. Lord God, we thank you so much for the heritage of Australia, that its political heritage. We thank you so much for each elected representative. We thank you so much for the, how hard they work for us and for what they believe to be the good of this land. We thank you especially for our brothers and sisters in the political machine, for their diligent labour in the Lord, um, in their particular roles, for the way in which they have offered prayers, not to mention work, for the good of this land and our freedom to proclaim Christ in it and live as your people. Father, we do pray that you would be at work even through the electoral process next weekend for the good of the people of this land, for the good of your people in it, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, uh, that we might be able to get on with proclaiming the name of Christ uh, free from harassment and living uh, in harmony, relatively speaking, uh, with people with whom we agree and with people with whom we disagree. Father, would you give us wisdom as we approach next Saturday, please? Wisdom to know how to vote, but bigger than that, wisdom to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be our hope and our anchor this week and in the years to come. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing an old hymn now that we don't sing terribly often, um, which pretty plainly recognises Jesus above all other kings. Crown him with many crowns. I invite you to stand. Let's sing together. <clears throat> 